Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to Voices of Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ken Njirogi. Ken is one of Africa's leading tech entrepreneurs. He's a man with a track record of founding companies and growing them to be industry leaders on the continent. For most of our audience, they may associate him most strongly with Cellulant, um, the mobile payments company that has grown to be one of the continent's leading payment providers. He stepped down from that role in June 2021, and he is now at the helm of a boutique investment company that he's founded to empower and support and presumably invest in tech entrepreneurs, uh, a firm called Panny, which I hope we'll hear a lot more about in due course. Ken is a graduate of the University of Nairobi and of Strathmore University. I was interested to read, Ken, that you studied pharmacy, and I'll be inquiring as to how or why and then how you may have used the knowledge of that field in any of your work. But specifically today, I hope we're going to touch on the fast-evolving tech ecosystem in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, It's a sector that has attracted significant sums of new capital over the course of the last year. In fact, investment into the sector more than doubled in 2022. So, Kent, it's a great pleasure for me to um, have the opportunity to speak to you today. Thank you for joining us for Voices of Africa. Thank you, Marcus, for having me and uh, for obviously tracking uh, my story from very, very long time ago. Well, I'm going to invite you to tell us more about that story. Tell us about yourself, where you grew up, and what ignited your passion for entrepreneurialism and the career choices that you've made over the decades that you've been an entrepreneur. And then tell us where you are now. You've recently founded a boutique investment company called Pani. I'm interested to hear a lot more about that. Thanks, Marcus. I'll give a little bit of color to to the story. It's actually generally been a, a long journey and for as far back as I can remember, was always driven and drawn to being an entrepreneur. So I, I grew up in a small town about a two hour drive from Nairobi. So I'm not a typical city kid. Nakuru was the town, it's probably a tier two city in Kenya. So I did all of my primary schooling, high schooling there. And then came to Nairobi for university. And the, the way it worked, uh, that was after high school, it was two year gap period. So, so to fill that gap, I was fortunate enough to get, get a scholarship to go and study information management systems at uh, what is now Strathmore University. Yeah, there were a secretarial and an accounting school. And this was, uh, we were sort of the first cohort studying computers. So I joined that and the two years that I was there, I fell in love with computers. Now that interrupted what was ideally a normal course of, uh, you know, from high school, the, the trend was that you went to university for what you were admitted to do. So basically, you know, when we did university selection, you selected a bunch of uh, courses and, you you know, the university then chose uh, based on your grades and picked you into, into one. And I got admitted to University of Nairobi School of Pharmacy. So two years studying computers, fell in love with it, fell in love with the institution, and then sort of progressed onto what was supposed to be a five-year program studying pharmacy. I didn't graduate from that uh, program. In fact, I failed my first year, repeated my first year, and then ended up dropping out in the second year. And it was, I mean, very devastating for my my mom. My mom's a single parent, 
brought us up to really be the best of the best in, in what we did. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of uh, messaging towards striving for the best and so on. I made a difficult decision actually to discontinue my pharmacy schooling and, and go back to Strathmore and continue with computers. So I did another one year. At that time, they didn't have degrees at what they called a graduate diploma, did that, and then got out into the working world. I was incredibly fortunate in the late 90s to then begin to work for what were startups then, startup ISPs. So, and of course, working in an ISP got a lot of exposure to the internet. And it was very easy to see this bug of sort of startups exploding everywhere in the world uh, driven by internet. So I think I always had an entrepreneurial bug within me. So I got drawn to this idea of building a technology-driven startup. That journey led me to founding my first startup in 1998, a startup called Three Mice with two other co-founders. We built that over a couple of years, and then it got acquired by the largest ISP called Africa Online at the time, and a, a really exceptional entrepreneur called Ayesi Makachani. I worked with him for a year and a half, close to two years. And it was quite inspiring to see these very young entrepreneurs scaling this ISP across Africa. My goose was cooked. I was beaten by the bug and incorrigibly so. So I ended up founding Cellular to it with a co-founder uh, called Bology. It was then, then very obvious that mobile was going to be a big digital platform across Africa. And that started what then became a 17-year-old journey of building a mobile services company across Africa. We founded Cellular and went through three large journeys. First started off as a B2C music business. We built that for a couple of years. And then we pivoted to actually providing digital solutions for banks and then pivoted into payments, right? So a very intense journey of pivoting so that then we can be in tune with the market and also in tune with the vision. We wanted to build sort of billion dollar business in Africa founded on strong values. That was an important part of that journey. And that journey, of course, was a very tough journey, but we made a lot of progress, built a good business across 18 markets, raised about $115 million of capital from different investors. And today, yeah, the business continues to grow, uh, run by a fairly good team of a lot of cellular insiders who've been there 10 years, 11 years, 15 years, and a mix of a lot of people that joined the last couple of years. It's a good mix. I sit on the board. It's less intense than the CEO job. And then I retired early 2021. And what I've been doing since then is actually leveraging on that experience of sort of building startups across Africa to try and make the journey better and smoother for the next generation of entrepreneurs who have the same aspirations in terms of the skill of the business, the Pan-African nature of the business, and really transformation of businesses for critical industries across Africa. That's what PANI is about. That journey sort of keeps me very hands-on involved in shaping strategy and uh, helping execution for the next generation of founders without carrying the stress of sort of running an operation, right? It's a lot of hard work, exciting work, somewhat without the stress. So that's generally my journey for about 22 years, which really feels like three years. Thank you for sharing that. It's great to hear. Interested, as I mentioned, to, to hear more about your work at Pani. But before we turn to Pani, you stepped down from Cellulant in 2021. Having co-founded this business and lived and breathed this business for as long as you did, I think since, since 2003, so almost 20 years, 18 years, I wonder how difficult it was for you to reach that decision to step down and what really motivated that decision? What were the signals for you in that case that it was the right time? Perhaps you could share some insights into that decision-making process. I think it's incredibly difficult. In fact, I have this theory that, you know, when you commit to that kind of mission, you, you hardly ever sort of walk away willingly, right? Almost always some kind of push that gets you off the line, right? You don't jump off the line, probably fall off. The question is, do you fall off badly or gracefully? 
A couple of things actually sort of uh, conspired to sort of nudge me out of the seat. One is internal, right? As early as 2016, I had always this feeling that I was generally not particularly enjoying the job, right? And then you feel trapped because it's a company you founded. It's at a critical stage. You don't have the luxury of sort of polishing up your CV and putting yourself in the market. That luxury isn't there. So you're trapped in this, this vision that's got good momentum and, and you can't quite walk away from it. That, that creates a certain element of pressure. And the second factor is then we went through a series of different crises, right? From 2016, we had a collapse of a, a bank, our primary bank. So we, we needed to sort of survive and recover from that. Then in 2017, 2018, the markets were very tough. We needed to recapitalize the business. I was in the market uh, for about two years, raising capital. Eventually, we got a Series C raised sometime in 2018. Uh, and then in 2019, we had this very tragic incident where there was a ter- terrorist attack in the office complex where settlement was, and, and, and we lost a lot of people. And then 2020 was Corona. And then late 2020, we had an internal crisis that uh, led to the departure of my co-founder. So basically what had happened then over a couple of years had sustained pressure and sustained stress, which essentially sort of burnt me out. And also, frankly, internal crisis shapes a lot of confidence with the board and with the, with the management team. And I think everybody kind of suspected that I was already exhausted and, and fatally exhausted, right? I think that, that was probably plainly obvious to my board. I think it was plainly obvious to the management team. I think the person that had the courage to call it out was actually my wife, right? So I took a break. And, and at some point, my wife looked at me and she said, you know what, this is the end. <laughs> it took me a couple of days to get my head around that. But actually, I, I did uh, then came to the conclusion that, yeah, actually, you know, she's probably right. The business probably needs a different leader, a different energy. And I wrote my note to the board while, while someone was on holiday. And so, and when I got back from holiday, we made a plan. I transitioned out. What I probably didn't account for was the, the emotional turmoil of leaving. A friend of mine um, who's a, who's a life coach basically told me, look, Ken, you're going to experience grief as if you lost a child uh, because yeah. cellular is not a job. It's actually a child. It sounded a little dramatic at the time, but actually it was a very difficult experience. You're sort of going through the transition. I think it's probably taken me about a year and a half, two years to really heal from that transition. And then what, what made it very difficult as well is that, then that I stayed involved, right, as a board member and so on. So I always had this live a reminder of what life could have been, you know, with me sort of being in the executive management and so on. Uh, so I've only just barely started enjoying the board meetings now, but for, for a year and a half, they were very difficult. Well, that's very instructive. Thank you for sharing those personal insights. I don't know if you know, Ken, but it's 20 years this year since I founded Africa Practice. And a lot of what you say in terms of, well, specifically the counsel of one's spouse, has been very important to me um, over the years. I've got um, a group of colleagues, uh, many of whom have worked uh, with me um, for over 15 years, and it's such a pleasure and an honor to have those really strong relationships with a cohort of colleagues um, that I've been able to, we've been able to develop and nurture over, over such a long period, and to the extent that we can almost finish each other's sentences today, which is fantastic in business, particularly when you're working across diversified geographic base. Um, so yes, I was listening intently as you told us a little bit about the decision points that you arrived at and the decision to, to step down. Thank you. You mentioned there um, the fundraising. I mean, you were remarkably successful at Stanley in raising funds from, from institutions and from international investors. 
Um, I think I'm right in saying that you, you raised something of the magnitude of $47 million um, towards the, the latter part of um, the, the, the growth journey that you led selling and Tom while you were at the helm there. Can you tell us about fundraising? A lot is, is spoken about you know, the success or otherwise of African businesses in raising international capital to fund their expansion plans. As someone who's been as successful as you were, can you tell us a bit about your experience of fundraising and both the agonies and the existence that you experienced over the, the almost 20 years that you were raising capital for the seminar? Yep. Yeah, we, we raised a lot of uh, huge uh, chunk of capital. So the $47.5 million that, that was Series C, but we had done a couple of rounds before that. Uh, we had done an A and B and a couple of extensions before that. I think in total, that number is probably closer to $80 million whilst I was at the helm. So the good part, it was always a combination of luck and work. The, the funding scenario has changed quite a bit, right? Actually, in the uh, to just understand that context, in, in 2018, when we raised Series C, the $47.5 million that was reported, I think the total investment in uh, FinTech in Africa that year was about $600 million, right? I, I think you were looking at the number, I think now annually, certainly somewhere in the region of 6 to $7 billion, I think, even in this depressed market. So in a very short time, the market has changed quite a bit. What drove uh, the progress, at least in the, in the very difficult times? I think... Um, a bit of luck, but but the work part of it is that uh, one just needed to do a lot of calls to be able to close around. I think for Series C, I started off with a shortlist of about 60 people. And even then in a hard market, ended up uh, getting just one time sheet for a lead right, uh, for the fund. And it, essentially b between when we started and when we got a check-in was just two years, uh, sort of flat. It's possible that the market's changed, but I, what I'm very certain is that the effort hasn't right? Uh, to raise successful round, somebody always needs to start with a large pool of validated leads. My figure is always somewhere in this region of 60 to 100. You have to start there and then have a very uh, clear sense of what you generally want out of the race. You're clear-minded and you can be decisive quickly. And then you're, you need to organize the business to be able to grow whilst you're on the road, right? Because uh, fundraising for the CEO is almost always a full-time job, right? Uh, not just time-wise, but also mentally. Organizing the business that the business continues to grow is super important because while you're on the road and pitching, you cannot afford that then the business sort of suffers because then it, it gets you into this sort of spiral of death where you need capital to drive growth. Uh, people are not seeing growth because so they're not giving you capital. Like you need to sort of make sure that you know, the business continues to be steady and so on. And that's about teams. It's about organizing the work and so on. So the prep before fundraising always super critical. I think a lot of founders miss that. And it always, almost always is fatal. I think the last thing is always to also be uh, fairly flexible and, and realistic about valuations. Uh, you'll be lucky that there are sometimes the markets are sort of bullish, but, but once in a while it will run into segments of time where the markets uh, brutally rational or, or or sort of even depressed. You have to just basically be able to sort of make the right adjustments to be able to attract the right kind of investors. We are very fortunate in that in that sense. We had fairly supportive investor group that continued to, to back the business in what was certainly a, a very patient journey. Sort of building a payments business is very patient. So you build out the infrastructure before you then start to see the sort of exponential growth. So that also is super important. Well, thank you. Really interesting to hear from the perspective of a, a very successful CEO and to understand just how much time you 
be devoted to that exercise and, and the long lead time. I want to turn to, to Pani, your new venture, your latest venture. So you left Sutherland and you established Pani a couple of years ago, a boutique investment firm supplying angel capital to entrepreneurs, promising founders in exchange for, for equity. Tell us about the portfolio that you're building at Pani. I think it was very natural, their progression into Pani, right? Because as an entrepreneur, you tend to be sort of driven by problems that you see as you as you live life. So as, as I lived my 22-year life of sort of a coming from three mice into cellular and so on, I think the journey of building was incredibly lonely. I think in many times you face problems that probably very few people understood and had been in that context, right? So it's one of the sort of distinct things that came across. That's one. The second one was that uh, we didn't find a lot of African capital as we grew. And we always thought that it was always super important to have a mix of capital because we were solving problems for Africa, right? So they just made a lot of sense that there's a, a huge mix of capital that understands the context and the problem. And, and that blend between uh, American, Dutch, British, Chinese, and African capital would be a good blend. So there was just a huge absence of African capital as we raised the rounds over time. And then also we made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, I normally say if Pani had existed when we were building Cellulant, we probably would have shaved off three to four years of uh, sort of our growth timeline. There were times when we backed into certain directions and, you know, two years, three years later and $5 million later, like you're like, look, this this was, would look like a very good idea, but not necessarily a good idea. In that process, we burnt a lot of time and burnt a lot of capital. We probably would have gotten there with 50, 60% of capital, even when we were disciplined and when well-meaning firm. And so what uh, the thesis of Pani was, could we go out into the markets and find entrepreneurs that were, uh, what Ken and Bologi were uh, 17 years ago, can we find those entrepreneurs now? And then can we be sort of a partner, very hands-on, very involved, that, uh, that essentially sort of partners with them to walk the journey. And hopefully we avoid some of the big expensive mistakes. We probably reduce their capital burn. And then whilst we do that, uh, we basically try to motivate a big chunk of African capital into the mix, right? That is essentially Pani's thesis. So, uh, so for two years, then we went out and spent time with, uh, to date now, what is somewhere in the order of like 90 entrepreneurs. And then we developed a selection uh, model for thinking about the entrepreneurs, the qualities of entrepreneurs that typically make it across that journey, the business models that we think make it across that journey, and then basically partner with them. And then we built out a syndicate that allows sort of professional Africans to sort of co-invest uh, with us in this very curated portfolio of companies. So what we generally do on a daily basis is do that selection. So today we have uh, two out of a portfolio of five that we, we can afford to support. It's very hands-on, so we can't do many, so we have to be choosy. And for those, the aspiration is essentially to grow. We basically partner with them when they're just about a million dollars run rate. And then our collective aspiration is to try to get them as close to $100 million of revenue in seven to 10 years, right? So, um, so that's pretty much uh, what Pani does. Every single day we spend time with entrepreneurs and their teams deploying what is actually an eclectic mix of coaching, mentoring, and consulting to support their strategy execution uh, as they grow. Ah, interesting. Can you tell us more about the criteria you set for both the entrepreneurs themselves, the, the founders, and the businesses that you're looking at, specific segments of the digital economy, or what are you looking for as an investor? We typically evaluate these businesses across uh, three 
kind of broad criteria. So we, we look at the entrepreneur themselves and we basically begin to work with them over an initial period of eight months. And so what we're looking for are just four qualities, right? So first one is grit. Uh, do they have a strong reason for doing? Uh, do they have the toughness to be able to withstand Africa and withstand time, right? Africa is incredibly volatile. Most of the ecosystems are young and so on. So, so you really need to do a lot of heavy lifting to get a business to, to maturity of a long period of time. So we look for that quality, super important. Uh, the second uh, quality we look for is just the ability to hire above oneself, right? So we're looking for signs very early on in the business that a founder is hiring contemporaries and they're hiring peers who bring different skill sets, right? Again, you probably have seen this in your journey. As a founder, you have one or two really special skill sets. Uh, but you need a complement of a couple of others to really build and you need them very early in the in the game so we look for that and then we look for coachability right the ability for entrepreneurs to have a fairly good reading of themselves and their st- what they can and can't do and to be coachable right uh, to be able to take tough conversations tough feedback from their teams and be able to sort of adjust and cost correct and to be able to build these are sort of really important qualities we look for Across the businesses, we invest at a stage when they've proven their product market fit. We almost always find that that's a second, third year, and they're where they are, they are within sight of a million dollars run rate. And then we typically invest in uh, technology companies across what we call uh, 10 technology subsectors, right? E-commerce, payments, uh, what we call broader fintech, uh, social commerce, digital uh, marketing, architect, and e-logistics. Right? Those are essentially the sort of subsectors we look for, and they need to be technology companies. I think that's kind of our specialization. And then uh, timing, uh, we always uh, try to find whether they're at an inflection point. Are they trying to expand into new markets and, or whatever it is and things like that? Because a lot of mistakes are made during those inflection points. You either delay making decisions, probably delay making choices, you delay creating clarity. And then you lose a lot of speed and momentum during those moments. So we look for those start inflection point because then we can be able to partner up quickly, demonstrate a lot of value to the entrepreneur partners. And then once we can do that, then we form very good high trust partnerships for, for the long term. Thank you, Ken, for, for sharing those insights. You talked about the subsectors within tech there, e-commerce, payments, broader fintech, social commerce, e-logistics, and ag tech. In preparing for this interview, I had a little reading because we've not met. And whilst I knew of your history with, with Three Mice and your stellar accomplishments with Cellulant, um, I realized I didn't, I didn't know a great deal about you. And I chanced upon an interview that a, a former colleague of mine, Tom Wilson, who's now um, with the Financial Times, uh, gave, or you gave to him rather, in, in 2019. There was a quote there that stood out for me in which you said, to really win the financial inclusion battle in Africa, you build it in agriculture and then replicate. You've spent the best part of two decades trying to address financial exclusion. I wonder if you can tell me more about the particular emphasis that you, you made in that interview to, with Tom on agritech and specifically the lessons that you draw from that segment of the market that you can extrapolate across other sectors and other industries. I, I think I recall the context of that discussion and the work that we were doing in agriculture at the time. I think the basic premise, uh, what I believe about financial inclusion and in Africa, that we always had a, a huge opportunity to solve a large underlying 
structural problem in a couple of the verticals that really powered the economy, right? And then that's essentially how you would drive financial inclusion across very sort of different sectors of financial products and services, right? I think uh, there were there was always a sense in which financial inclusion was always viewed within the lens of sort of bottom of the pyramid. But actually, when you think about financial inclusion, what I've seen actually as I've started to even talk about from my own experience in agriculture, from my experience in payments, and then, and from what I've seen in other startups in other sectors, such as logistics, for instance, you find that basically there's huge needs of underserved needs across very different sophisticated financial products. So it's not just a lack of savings play for, for the bottom of the pyramid. It's basically access to credit, access to trade finance, access to working capital, access to equity capital, just across board. And what I always believed was that if you solved the underlying problem, then you actually, you, you created a base upon which financial products would, would be able to, to roll. So for agriculture specifically at the time, there was all, all of this fragmented value chain uh, for where bumper productivity was super low. And then the little productivity that was there, there was a lot of spoilage because of access to market. I always felt that because agriculture employed you know, 60, 70% of populations, depending on which countries you look, looked at. If you need to be able to get those guys financially included, you needed to go in and solve sort of the underlying problem, which is essentially what we're trying to do. In Nigeria, where we're creating a marketplace, sort of matching demand and supply in the ag sector. And that construct actually is a common construct. We recently uh, saw with a startup that is kind of in the e-logistics sector and doing clearing and forwarding. And, uh, and basically what what they were then doing by doing clearing and forwarding that created this technology-driven model to collateralize the product. You know, when you basically manufactured it in China, and so they essentially collected it off uh, off factory, and so they had uh, started to create this tracking and visibility and data collateralizing that product and basically opening up access to trade finance for businesses that generally would not have trade finance. So as a general construct, that's what I meant, that... Uh, if you solve the underlying problem, then actually you made uh, created a platform for all this very sophisticated suite of financial services that are typically available in certain segments of the economy and in other sophisticated economies. This then become accessible to smaller and lower income people and, and it's much, much smaller businesses across the spectrum. Great. Thank you for shedding light on that. I hope that by presenting that question to you, you give us all those underlying perspectives that you've just shared. Um, fascinating to hear. Thank you. In that same interview with Tom, I saw you quoted also as saying that mobile money is only the beginning. That was four years ago now. I want to ask you, I wanted to ask you if, if mobile money has evolved in, in the way in which you anticipated it would then, um, four years ago, and really what you meant by only at the beginning. Um, could you shed some light on that? Yeah, I think, I think it was interesting that, you know, in 2019, that's typically what we believe to be the case. But actually now it's quite refreshing to see the different evolutions of that have been. And I think what happened is that mobile money was essentially the sort of foundational enabler for payments across the continent. You could generally say a sort of first wave was MPESA, MTN, mobile money sort of doing the sort of foundational work. Second wave was actually the birth of payments business. So Cellular and Flutterwave, Paystack, Yoko. They are all essentially sort of built on the back of payment rails. So in sub-Saharan Africa, 
the mobile money are absolutely the foundation of the payments businesses, right? And and you know that that's the sector in tech. I think uh, that particular sector now, my estimate is probably generating about $10 billion of, of revenue, right? So that basically the mobile money sector plus everything that's evolved around that and all of the payment offshoots. And of course, then you know beyond that, then, then there was another layer of sort of mobile lending which is sort of getting gotten to scale in most parts of East Africa and, and then becoming now a sort of a pioneering model for access to microcredit across the economies, right? And the other very important trend is because of now this availability of these basic foundational building blocks. And this is where you're seeing a lot of now the trends of innovating ac- across different market value chains, right? So health, education, all of the new innovation in education, the models for micro courses and, and micro payments in education and all the way to e-logistics. Like that's essentially the trend I saw and, and it's ha- actually happening in real time today. Thanks, Ken. I want to talk about the enabling environment for entrepreneurs um, or tech entrepreneurs specifically, drawing from your significant experience and insights over over, over more than two decades. We had um, Charles Morito on this podcast, Charles Morito of, of Google, um, just a few episodes ago, and he spoke to the enormous potential of Africa's digital future. Um, I think um, Google, with the IFC, if I recall correctly, had, had commissioned a study that shows that the internet economy can grow to $180 billion um, and create 44 million jobs by 2025. That's that's roughly 5 and 5% of, of the continent's GDP, so a really significant uh, opportunity potential. At the same time, I'd seen a piece of research that shows that e-commerce potential for the continent um, that's forecast to surpass something in the order of half a billion dollars um, by 2025, so very soon now, and then to go well beyond that to tens of billions of dollars, so really accelerating fast. I wonder to what degree you feel that the continent and specifically tech entrepreneurs and some of those businesses that you're looking at are really primed, capacitated with access to the sort of capital that you were you, you were so successful at securing in your journey with Cellulant um, to enable the continent to, to realize this potential. You spoke just now of a few of those, I think they're called unicorns now, aren't they? The likes of, of Flutterware and, and Cellulant and the likes but they're still rarefied objects. And I would love to get a sense from you of healthy you feel the, the tech ecosystem is on the continent. And any examples of where you feel industry and government are working collaboratively together to strengthen and facilitate the growth of tech startups. Yeah, thanks for that question, Marcus. I'm fairly positive about um the prospects for the tech ecosystem. And I'm positive because, I mean, there's a lot of structural challenges and it's for all intents and purposes, a incredibly young ecosystem. But if you look at a lot of the indicators, of course, I mean, you've, you've done a good job in terms of painting the macro opportunity. And you know what happens with, with opportunity? When the opportunity becomes framed and becomes clear, it begins a sort of process of attracting capital. And I think I saw somewhere at the cumulative capital that has gone into tech ecosystems about $20 billion. And if you look between 2018 and 2022, you see a sort of hockey stick in terms of acceleration from a very low starting point to what is really good. And, and what that does, then it catalyzes a lot of the path into the funnel, right? A very wide funnel of startups getting in. 
And what we now need to do is to keep doing what everyone's trying to do, right? If I look across the sort of enablers of the tech ecosystem, I start to look at general government, the, the sort of government posture and voice towards digitization, right? And, and you say every government in Africa without fail is essentially sort of drumming, evangelizing, and creating laws that essentially are enabling digitization, right? I think that's everywhere. I, I recently went to Ethiopia and I see that. Now, of course, there's different flavors of how they, they, this interprets in terms of how they're thinking about the laws of uh, creating a, a framework for startups. I see governments even uh, across uh, West Africa, the government of Nigeria, they've got a very uh, structured framework for thinking about startups. They've got a vision to put together a $600 million fund. You see a lot of that progress in Rwanda. You see a lot of um, the changes in, in the law that guide pension funds and so on to begin to invest in venture capital and private equity. Like those enablers are there. So you could say there's a lot of fuel vapor in the air. Now, what, what do we think is the match that is required to sort of ignite and accelerate the rocket? I think it, in many ways, it's probably an exit, a large exit. It's my thought that actually uh, probably a large exit will happen over the next three years. So I expect that uh, the capital coming in to continue to increase. I expect that uh, large startups uh, continue to grow because the headroom for digitization is, is huge. I expect that high-quality entrepreneurs continue to make their journey across the pipeline to, to scale. I expect the number of unicorns to continue to grow. And then that is probably going to accelerate when one of these unicorns uh, sort of exits at a billion dollar plus. And I think in, you know, looking at just the ecosystem, we'll probably see that exit in, in about three years. Fascinating. I wonder if I can ask you, to what degree are you involved in helping to shape the policy and regulatory environment, either in Kenya or, or working with other governments? Because you talked about, I think you used the term fumes in a very positive light around the energy and enthusiasm being shown by African governments and regulators in, in, in supporting the tech ecosystem. But um, just in the last days and weeks, you know, we've had a lot of conversations around regulation of AI, the EU announcing proposals for quite stringent regulation of AI, congressional meetings happening in the US, the AU leading a process to look at um, digital policy and being slightly opaque in terms of the way it approaches consultation to get perspectives of industry and the tech ecosystem into um, that policy shaping conversation. Does it worry you that um, perhaps not more tech entrepreneurs such as yourself with such a, a history of evolving and businesses in this space and not perhaps more involved in setting the rules, the rules of the game? Actually, I find that a lot of the governments across Africa are incredibly consultative in sort of creating the framework. So a lot of the startup acts in Kenya and in Nigeria have evolved through a journey of a lot of consultation. So there's been a lot of uh, startup entrepreneurs that have been, been involved in a lot of the roundtable discussions shaping policy. And myself and a lot of other entrepreneurs in the ecosystem uh, actively participated in, in sort of shaping a lot of the dialogue around those things. I think uh, there's always going to be an advantage. You know, you can't regulate that which you don't know, right? So creating the framework is very good because it creates predictability for everybody. But it all, almost always needs to be done at the right time. So there's enough of a shape and form to know exactly what shape and form this will, will take. And then to kind of figure out the regulatory framework that typically works for it, right? And, and I think the greatest success actually for that was M-Pesa. And so today you see 
a lot of the payment service frameworks in the countries incredibly clear about what you can and can't do. These frameworks have actually just evolved over the last two years. So this is sort of 12 years with M-Pesa, 12, 13 years M-Pesa being in the market, right? Like it's now very clear. You can actually create a very clear framework for what that looks like. So I like the fact that entrepreneurs are involved in the conversations. I like that uh, it takes time for governments to kind of get their heads around those frameworks in Africa. And I think that's important because then it creates a little bit of the breathing room that's required for for people to get these things out into the market and to adapt the use cases to problems in the market that typically ensure the relevance of of these technologies, of payments, of AI, and all of that in, in the long term. I'm reminded that in the Kenyan case, all those years ago, you had a very progressive policymaker in, um, or regulator, should I say, in Bitangi Ndemo, who was, who was PS at your Ministry of Information and Communications, I think it was called at the time, and enlightened people like the late uh, Calestas Juma as well, who were sought, whose advice was sought, I think, in helping frame the appropriate um, policy environment for the, the tech ecosystem to really um, take a hold in, in Kenya. Um, Ken, traditionally, I invite our guests to tell us what they're reading at the moment, or in the age of podcasts, what they may be listening to or would be happy to recommend to our audience. So can I invite you to, to do the same and tell us what you're reading or listening to? It's interesting. So I I read small chunks of books at, at the same time and uh, repeat and reread uh, books on my old shelf, depending on the circumstances. So today... I think the books on my bedside table, the first one is, um, it's called The Seven Seasons of a Man's Life. So it's uh, quite reflective about the journey that typically we, we go through life. And then the second one is A Trillion Dollar Coach, a book on very relevant to the work I'm doing, uh, a book about this legendary coach in the Silicon Valley called Bill Campbell. I'm sure you probably come across his book. Uh, so yeah, so that's, that's it, two books I'm reading. I don't listen to podcasts much, except once in a while when prompted. But at Pani, we have a podcast. It's available on all platforms. It's called The African Fireplace. So what we do with that uh, podcast is basically just share the sort of under the hood, behind the scene, real stories of what building a business in Africa looks like and just share from our journey. Oh, great. Well, I look forward to tuning into, into that. It's been such a pleasure to... Um to meet you today and to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your journey and your insights into the tech ecosystem and the work that you're doing specifically at, at Pani. I wish you every success. So you have a, a stellar record of success over your long career. And I look forward to seeing those businesses, those five, I think you said that you're supporting and in, invested in growing to $100 million businesses as, as you intend that they should. I've learned a lot through speaking with you. Um, specifically around the, the criteria that you, you use when, when determining whether, whether to invest and, and support entrepreneurs, those three things of grit, the propensity for the founder to hire above themselves and their coachability. Thank you, Ken, for, for all the valuable insights that you've shared with, with me and, and with our audience today. Thank you, Marcus. And also very inspired by the journey of Africa practice and how long you've been you've been doing at it for our services business. And we've had a wonderful working relationship with a couple of your people across my journey in, in Kenya and Nigeria.
Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.